Voiceover Coffee Shop, episode number 67. Welcome to the Voiceover Coffee Shop, where we share our morning with some of the finest names in voiceover. And now, here's your host, voice actor Andrew Morrison. Hi there, my name is Andrew Morrison, and welcome to the VoiceOver Coffee Shop, where we start our day with some of the finest names in voiceover. If you'd like to get to know a little bit more about me, feel free to check out my website at www.andrewdmorrison.com. In this episode, we have my very, very good friend, Danny Jacobs. Danny is a phenomenal voiceover talent and a stage actor who has taken the crown as King Julian from the Madagascar series. In addition to his works with DreamWorks, he's also multiple voices in the universes of the Animaniacs, Lego Star Wars, Futurama, and many, many more. Danny was kind enough to stop by and talk with me about improv and animation, voice matching using outtakes, and maintaining your voice for expressive characters. So without further ado, let's get the show started. So how are you doing today, buddy? Great. No complaints. All gratitude. Fantastic. So how do you take your coffee in the morning? How do you, how do you kind of start your day? Well, you know, it's, it's sort of a mix now. I mean, I have to do decaf now. How come? I've discovered um, I have a genetic variant that makes it difficult for my body to process the caffeine. Okay. So I've I've had I've been through all iterations. I think I started drinking coffee when I was like 14. My grandmother made a coffee milkshake for me. She was like, put coffee and then she put a ton of sugar and milk in it. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is good. I like coffee. <laughs> and um, you know, I used to just have a cup or two a day. And then I think I was traveling at one point. My buddy, we were in Seattle at the time when Starbucks was kind of on the rise, and it's like everyone was just slamming coffee and chocolates all day. Right. Then I kind of got into, you know, more of the, you know, different types of uh, beans and brews. And then eventually it was just like, why am I having these anxiety attacks? Oh, maybe I should just go decaf. <laughs> <laughs> so it so was, after, yeah. What was it after that, that you like went and got tested and found out that you had like that variant where, where you're sensitive to caffeine or? Yeah. Um, okay. It wasn't, I wasn't tested because of that. I was tested because I was trying to figure some other health stuff out. Okay. And I found out that I have this MTHFR gene mutation. So, um, yeah, it affects, it affects certain things you, you can't metabolize. Like, you know, I have to be careful. Like I can have a glass of wine every now and then, but I have to drink it slowly mm -hmm. after I have my protein for the meal type okay. of thing. Same thing with coffee. If I eat a, a protein heavy breakfast or something, and then I have a cup of coffee afterwards, it's less of an issue, but, um, there's also an issue with B vitamin metabolism. Uh, so mm -hmm. with certain variants, you um, you can't, a lot of these vitamins and supplements and, and even sort of the wheat products have a synthetic form of, uh, of B in them. Um, okay. Folate, folic acid they yeah. use. That's a synthetic form. So okay. some people don't have a problem um, metabolizing that. But with people with certain variants, First of all, you can't metabolize, you can't, you can't make the translation from the folic acid into methylfolate, which is the usable form. So, and then on the, and so you're not getting the vitamin you need. Mm. And on the other hand, it's sort of the folic acid not being able to be processed sort of backs up in your system and causes issues. So it's kind of a double, double-edged sword. So gotcha. what you do is you just, you do, you make sure you don't eat anything with folic acid in it, and then you supplement methylfolate in and you're, you're, it like levels the playing field. You're like back to zero again. So, okay. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. There's this whole emerging field, um, called, uh, genomics or nutrigenomics, um, which I'm really excited about right now, because I think a lot of people could get a lot of relief from things because they don't realize that some of the issues they're having are just like, well, you shouldn't eat this and you should, right. you should eat this or supplement that. And then the problem goes away because it's a lot of it's about deficiencies. Even, even some things that are categorized as mental health issues are, we don't think of mental health as physiological. Mm -hmm. We think of our brain and our mind as separate somehow from our endocrine system. But the more I learn about it, the more, more I realize it's like, ah, you're not going crazy. You just need this vitamin. <laughs> right. And I've been <laughs> looking at this. 
Yeah. I've been looking at deficiency testing because there's a place out of, um, I believe it's Florida, where they've gotten really, really big for checking in what you're deficient. And, and they have like, uh, I, I don't know whether it's true or not. They have like this thing. Yes, 10x, where, where they can oh. tell you the exact day that you're going to die. But like, but, but what they yeah, primarily yeah. do is is check for deficiencies. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's I, I'm very interested in them. Um, I, I was actually researching them to see which stuff, because... There's so many variants, um, but they, I think they particularly focus in on the four or so that are, we have the most knowledge about mm -hmm. and there's other, but there's more and more knowledge being stacked up all the time. So it's like, but yeah, that dude who started that, he, um, he used to work in the uh, insurance industry, yeah. like handicapping, like whether people are, how long people are going to live. So yeah, I'm fascinated by that. Um, yeah, I'm 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 actually thinking about trying to look into possibility of getting into it in a professional way. But oh, that'd be cool. But I don't know how that's going to happen. But I just the more I read about it, the more I'm like, man, you just you just need this amino acid, right? <laughs> right. And your family life would be better and stuff like that. You know, like you wouldn't be you know mad at your husband. This whatever you know. Right. So, <laughs> So I know you've got like a big theater background, but what's kind of like your origin story into getting into the voiceover world? Because you've been doing that for, for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, I started, I did a, a couple of plays in high school and I just kind of did those for fun. I got roped into it. I didn't have any designs on being an actor. And then it was sort of the reaction, like the third, I needed third party validation. Like mm -hmm. I needed people to go, no, 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 you're really, you know, like you've got something. And I'm like, uh, but, you know, unless there's someone to blaze a trail for you, you don't really see it as a possibility sometimes, especially if you're from my background, which is, you know, very, you know, sort of Detroit, like, you know, blue collar, keep your head down and work. Don't think you're better than anyone else type of thing. Mm -hmm. There's some uh, false humility mixed in there, but which is, right. you know, humility is just the truth as it is, right? Without any embellishment or or taking away. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes in in uh, certain cultural situations, certain geological situations, family situations, you're made to think that in order to be humble, you have to believe that you're absolutely not capable of it. Or, you know, it gets twisted is what I'm saying. So one of the big hurdles for me is like I had to get over it and just um, just understand, even though my mom was always saying you can do whatever you put your mind to, you know, all things are possible with God and things like that. Um, it wasn't until I. Um, I was in college and I was uh, in Detroit at Wayne State and I was just doing general studies, hadn't declared a major, and I was doing community theater at night. And I really wanted to, you know, give it the proper try. So I wanted to like become a professional actor. And then mm -hmm. I, I, um, I wanted to get away. So I applied to the University of Arizona's theater department. And around the same time, I found out I had a cousin on Broadway. And I was like, wait, that's what? That's cool. We have a cousin who's on Broadway <laughs> in the original production of Les Miserables. And I was like, wait, so a Lebanese kid from Detroit can actually break through? And it just opened a door in my mind for me, you know, mm -hmm. because I don't know, we're, 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 we have this mimetic desire. We, can, we just mimic what's around us. So until we there's someone near us to model that it can be done, a lot of times you don't think it can be done. We see this in a lot of different communities like you know, um, but in any case, I got accepted to U of A. I studied, studied theater, did theater for like 12 years. And I started realizing like, man, this, you know, you don't get paid when you're not doing a show and you right. could be doing very well in theater. So-called like you could be doing three, four shows a year, but you know, those are like basically two month periods of time. So that's, that's, you know, uh, six or eight months out of the year. The rest of the time you're not making anything. So, so I locally, I just was with an agent and I said, I want to start auditioning for voiceover because one of the buddies I was doing theater with was doing well with commercial voiceover. Okay. I was like, this would be a great way to supplement in case I, you know, end up getting married and having a family, you know, this will be better resources and trying to, you know, that's when I started thinking, you know, I'm thinking like my dad always did was like, where's the money coming from? Where are you going to get the money? Right. From? Right. <clears throat> so. So the first uh, commercial audition I ever auditioned for, for voiceover, I booked. Okay. And it was for this cool. little like cars, cars, audio shop, you know? Okay. And um, 
I did it. It was like a fast talker. It was like, so I'm going down the road, you know, and I was right. just like, it was a crazy experience. It was really intense, but, but I booked it and I was like, okay, wait, there's something here. So then I, then I went and got some coaching and, and produced a voice demo and stuff like that. But it, you know, it was very limited in Detroit. I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I think animation voiceover would really be the best thing for me because even when I was doing theater, I was always doing character voices. Mm-hmm. It was very rare when I was playing a character speaking in this voice. Um, it would happen from time to time, but normally it's like in the theater, I was considered a chameleon. Like, oh, you could be a French guy. You could be an Arab guy. You can be, a, you can be an English guy. You could be an Indian guy. So it was great because I could just switch and go. And then I'm doing, I, I had the ability to do the accents to go along with it. You know, playing, you know, one of the, I did one production, four different productions of a show where I was Armenian. So, you okay. know, I just picked up all these dialogue, dialects and accents. And, um, and I liked that because one of the things I liked about acting was being someone else than me. Mm-hmm. I liked being me, but I liked, you know, seeing the world through other eyes and, and having this ability to like uh, portray other people and and see the world through their eyes, et cetera. So, uh, so I did that for a long time, and then um, I I I kind of discerned that I should go to LA, and I had been back and forth to LA a couple times, and the second time I went out, I actually had a voiceover agent. Um, well, technically I didn't, but one of my friends from college that I was a, was a, one of my theater friends became an agent at one of the big agencies out there. Okay. I was nobody. So they kind of hip pocketed me, mm-hmm. you know, they, they used to call it that where it's like, we're yeah. not going to sign you, but if something comes up on our radar, we might have you audition for it. And if you book it, then we're, you know, we'll take the commission. We'll be, you'll be our client from that point. Yeah. So my friend, Natanya Rose, my dear friend and agent, who's still my agent, um, they were doing the first seasons of Futurama. Okay. And she worked with another agent uh, from a different agency to get me in to be one of the uh, one of the four people doing what we call Walla. Yeah. So, you know, Walla is where mm-hmm. for, the, for the audience, it's like, it's the equivalent of, it's not really the equivalent of being an extra because you get paid better than being an extra. Right. <laughs> you're considered, you know, you get paid the same as if you had lines, but mm-hmm. instead of having actual lines, you, they might throw you a line every now and then, but mostly it was crowd scenes. Right. Those two guys and two girls. And it's just like, oh, this chicken is really tender tonight. Blah, blah, blah. And then they would sweeten that up and add a bunch of layers and it would sound like this big crowd mm-hmm. at a fancy luncheon, you know, for example. So I got to do seven episodes of Futurama and, um that was just like amazing but then I moved back to Michigan for a while and then I was still doing theater and I was um uh actually artistic director of a couple theater companies and things like that and did some directing and then and then it just was like kind of aching in me like you need to get back out there and and the idea was I wanted to go out and pursue film and and television on camera Mm -hmm. and then also pursue um, you know, really pursue voiceover harder and, and especially with a mind toward animation voiceover. But so when I went back, things were even tighter as far as getting an agent. Mm -hmm. Um, so even the agencies that I was with before, no, actually that's, that's how it went. When I got Futurama, I was with, um, uh, I was with a different agency. And even though my friend worked at a different agency, she, told my agent like hey try and get him in there and so when i but as soon as i left la i was gone for like five years hmm. when i came back even though my resume was bigger and i had all more experience and all this kind of stuff and i already had stuff going on everyone's like our ah, roster's all full up you know I'd, lo- I'd love to take it but we're all good on talent hmm. so that's when my my friend was like kind of hip pocketed me and then I was just doing what I could, you know, I even had a, you know, I was waiting tables. I was like a Manny for one of my friend's kids. <laughs> and then um, I was doing what I could here and there uh, in the on-camera world. And then um, one day, one of the agents was walking down the hallway and they were like, we need someone to voice match Sasha Baron Cohen. And I had, I had done a match of him in an on-camera project 
mm-hmm. um, as Borat. As Borat, yeah, in yeah. Uh, epic movie, yeah, epic movie, yeah. So, you know, the um, the association is like if you've imitated the guy before, it doesn't matter if he's doing a different character voice. But they did at that time want someone to do like a Borat like voice. They're like. You know, someone's walking down the hallway saying, hey, who do we have anyone who could do this? And my friend Natani was like, yeah, he's our client. Who? Danny Jacobs. We'll call him in. Let's do it. So came in, auditioned, booked the job. So then I was kind of on the radar at the agency and I had some sort of a hook to kind of get me in there. And um, and then uh, within a couple months, they were looking for someone to do Sasha's voice uh, to do um, scratch track for Madagascar 2. So for the audience, scratch track is um, it's when you do initial recording before there's any animation done. Um, you only have the script. And then the idea is later on, the person who's actually playing the role will come in and record over what you did because that person's off doing another project. They're not available, but the animators really need to get going and they need a, a live good performance. So it's they take great care in choosing who's who's doing scratch because a lot of times like, you're doing the performance. Mm-hmm. The celebrities coming in and matching what you did, um, you know, and then you know, not not in every case, but sometimes they're match. They have to because you've already created the rhythm. Sometimes you improvise. You've created the lines, and um, I went in an audition for that, and they had everybody. So it was like, you know, it was like, okay, now it's me and the whole world of animation voiceover greats, and. Thankfully, uh, one of the booth directors, Kimberly, um, she she helped me get this audition in a workable way, and and I got a call back, and they, they kind of I kind of got the job, but <clears throat> the first couple times I went in, it was like it's good, but it's just like I kept getting these notes like it's a little too metered, a little too measured, and I didn't kind of what they know exactly what they were talking about. Um, having, you know, come up through the theater, I was accustomed to delivering the script as written Mm -hmm. and bringing life to that. Even though I had a little bit, I had a lot of sketch comedy in my background and a little bit of improv. Um, But I always want to respect the writers, you know, because some some writers back in the day are in the theater. If you just like start changing a writer's lines, it's not really taken with appreciation. They're like, it took me six hours to write that line. And I got it exactly how I wanted it. Now you're, you know, right, right. <laughs> so, so one of the, uh, so one of the sound engineers at DreamWorks, God bless him, um, uh, was smart enough to give me a CD of outtakes of Sasha's from the first movie. And what Sasha was doing was he would do the line, "Oh, here are the freaks." And then he would go off for like three minutes, just improvising, like, look at their heads. They're crazy. Look at that little guy. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, you want me to, that's what you, that's what they meant by too measured or too metered. Like they wanted me to unhinge this guy and they didn't want him to be predictable. Like, so I, I just started doing the same thing. I went in the next session and I just improvised all these lines. They're like, yeah, now you got it. So I got to do Scratch for Madagascar 2. And then right after that, they were casting for the um, Penguins of Madagascar TV series, which Julian was going to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And um, Sasha wasn't interested in doing it. So it was sort of my job to lose. Thankfully, I didn't. Series got picked up. We did 82 episodes or whatever. And and then at that point, it was like, okay, now you know I'm kind of... I have a foot, like a whole foot in the door instead of a toenail, you know? And so, uh, and then I, you meet and work with all these great people through that show. And then maybe they ask you to come on and do a guest spot on another show that they're like, uh, one of my great friends, Lisa Schaefer, who's a voice director. Um, do you know Lisa at all? Uh, I, I know the name. Oh, we haven't, we haven't had the pleasure of meeting just yet. She's great. So during that time, she was, she was also voice directing, uh, like Phineas and Ferb and then, she voice directed many, many shows. And, um, you know, so then, you know, you start getting a little bit of a like familiarity with people and they're like, oh, we need someone to come in and do, you know, when you do a guest role in animation, you know, they have you for three voices for the same price as one. Right. So they always like to utilize that because then they can hire six people instead of 18. 
it's way less expensive. It's way Makes less. So much sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> way less of a logistical nightmare where you're like calling 18 different people for scheduling. So once they realize you're a guy who can do many voices and, you know, and do that well, then they're like, all right, you know, sometimes they're just getting off or come in and do, you know, such and such. So then I was sort of up and running at that point. I as you know, kind of the first time I felt like I was making a living wage in in entertainment that wasn't you know theater i still was doing a little theater here and there at that point but then i got busy enough with voiceover to where you know i couldn't travel i couldn't you know i had to just kind of concentrate on the voiceover thing and and i was happy right where i was well i'm like you know animation voiceover was like tailor-made for me and i was tailor-made for it so once i kind of found that niche i was like i'm good i don't need to i i stopped doing on-camera work so I just spoiled. <laughs> as, as you were continuing continuing to do King Julian, did you find yourself learning more and more about how to voice match and, and more embody the original character? Or did you kind of like start giving it a life of its own as, as it slowly progressed? Well, I mean, my my initial goal was I want to get it as close to the shot Sasha's as possible because right. I loved what he did. Mm -hmm. And the studio, of course, they're guarding that. Like when you have gold, you don't want to change the formula. So right. And I, when I was living in Detroit, when the first Madagascar movie came out, and I remember taking my nieces and nephews to see that movie. And I always, you know, you always have this ear. If you're someone who can voice match and do animation characters mm -hmm. and all that, you develop this ear. And so when you're watching commercials or movies, you don't know who it is. You're like, oh, that's that's Brian Cranston, or oh, that's. Uh, you know, Gene Hackman, or you just start hearing people's voices and then it becomes a little game. You check the credits at the end. I'm like, yep, got it. Mm -hmm. you know? And when, the, when I saw Madagascar, I was like, who is doing that voice of that King Julian character? This, this is amazing. It's hilarious. And it's so different and off the wall. I just, you know, and I just, I saw the name and I don't think I quite recognized it. And then I ended up moving out to LA the year later. And my buddy, Rick Hoffman, who's a great actor who was on suits yeah. and all that. He, uh, he turned me on to uh, the Ali G show. He's like, we got to watch the Ali G show, you know, and, and he was doing Borat on there. And that's where I kind of became familiar with Sasha, his work. And I was just cracking up at it. And then, so when I started doing the voice, it was like, I want to match his, what he's doing character wise as much as I possibly can. But the, the problem came when, well, the difference is started happening when you start doing 80 episodes mm -hmm. and you're doing 11 minute episodes. And, you know, when you're doing a feature film, there's no time constraints. You can do the line nice and easy and slowly. And mm -hmm. Everyone's great with it. But you do that in the TV show. They're like, can you, can you speed it up a little bit? A, we we yeah. got to fit this in between commercials. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You're turning it into a three act play. So then all of a sudden he starts speeding up and he starts taking on this more manic energy, just sort of organically. There's nothing, you know, you can, you know, it just starts happening that way. It starts going off in that direction and, and it's still people like it. So you're like, okay. And then just the sheer volume of the, and then sometimes they, they compr time compress those episodes a little bit. I, I've heard them on certain streaming platforms where the voices sound pitched up a little bit to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that ain't how we did it exactly. You know, everyone just <laughs> sounds a little bit tweaked, a little bit heliumized, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's all these different things. And then by the time we did 82 episodes of that, and then we did six seasons of All Hail King Julian on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And then there, I did a Christmas special for Julian. I did a Valentine's special for Julian. And then I did all these ancillary things like cruise ships and theme parks. <clears throat> so by that time, the sheer volume of stuff that I've done, when I, it's kind of shocking, but when I look at what Sasha's done, which is genius, it's very little. It's like mm -hmm. a handful of lines in each film, but it's so memorable that everyone's like, oh, Julie was, Julian was all throughout that, you know? And it's like, actually, he had like 15 lines or something, you know, something right. like that. But then when I look at the volume of, you know, when we did All Hail King Julian, those were 22-minute episodes. So that was essentially the equivalent of, a hundred and you know twice as much as what we did for for uh uh the penguins of madagascar so it ends up taking on a life of its own and then and then the character himself is in different situations so now he's king he's not king someone stole his crown he's 
scared. He's almost going to die. And you're playing in all these different situations to where you're having to find new, it's all new ground, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's no one else to find it, but you and in your directors and your cast members. And, and then it just, so it does have to evolve and it does evolve. And, you know, there's no other way for that to happen. And then you just, I just became comfortable with it. It's like, yeah, his voice is not exactly the same. It's changed a little bit. And mm -hmm. his, um, it's not that it's, it's, you're not subtracting anything. You're just adding. Right. So the same original guy is still there. And then it's plus, 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 plus. Right. Right. So, and were there any like resources that like you utilized to kind of help you grab those different emotions for those different scenes where you had to do the groundwork and, and like exploring new territory? I mean, that's where the acting training comes in, you know, right. the, right. the, all the years of acting on stage and, and, you know, playing all these different character arcs and, and knowing how to be, you know, an integral part of the story. I always, I always approach everything as like, what's the story? I'm a big picture. You know, some actors don't do this. And some, some acting teachers will say, oh, you should never, you know, even some actors like Christopher Walken and people like that sometimes are famous for being known. Like, I don't want to know what's happening in the next scene. Right. And it might be, be because they don't want to have to fool themselves or, you know, they, they can genuinely be surprised. Mm -hmm. But for me, I find that if I know what's coming up next, I'm able to compartmentalize and I'm able to still act the scene as if I don't, as if the character doesn't know what's coming next. Right. But if I know what's coming next story-wise, when I improvise, the greatest feeling I have is when I improvise something that actually ties up a story point mm -hmm. and adds at like, there, there was one time I can remember where there was these, it was like a running joke, but there was only two of them. So in the last scene, I improvised something that was like the rule of three, third joke that also then tied into the how to tie up the story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and everyone just like, we were all, we all loved it. And I was like, I just get great satisfaction because I'm all about serving the story. Right. You know? So, um, so yeah, that's where all that comes from. And then it's just like you giving yourself the freedom and, you know, and I have to say that the people that I work with in the writers and directors they're ne they've never been um there have been small projects in the theater and in like the commercial world sometimes you'll work in that world and it'll be like they're acting like it's like rocket science mm -hmm. and or that it's high art you know mm -hmm. like you might be doing a a, a commercial and ever there's 18 people standing around i don't know we got to do it this way do it this way do it this way and that and that's kind of you know sometimes it's like that in the theater but the best experiences for me are when it's like everyone's trusted to do their job and they just go, go. And that's what happened. The first day I stepped in the theater in the studio at DreamWorks, they were just like, man, do, do whatever you do, what you do, man. <laughs> Another one. They had, they, they had, I mean, their direction wasn't like, say it like this. Right. It was like, do another one, have more fun with it. What if he, you know, and then, and then they would just, it was just like this piggybacking. You know, to the point to where, you know, a lot of the stuff that I improvised ended up in in the movie. You know, one one of my early on uh, satisfying moments was I had I had improvised a scene in Madagascar two, where the the rudiments of it were there, but I just kind of took it further. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the scene where Marty uh, he thinks he's going to die, so he goes to the death pits. And Julie, Julian comes upon him and he's, and he ends up like, you know, like edifying and building him up to not to want to live, you know, and cause he's depressed about whatever. And, and mm -hmm. so it was written in such a way that when I read it, I was like, this is like revival. This is like gospel revival thing. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you need to rise up, you know? And I just started doing the, you know, the lines <laughs> like that. And the, and the, and the directors and, and, and writers were like, yes and then they went so that when that was when i was just doing scratch so then sasha comes in and he he aligns with it and then they end up music uh putting music underneath it and having the character maurice do the call and respond thing rise up rise up you know and they just like expanded from there so that's what i love is when there's this collaborative process yeah ones you know and i never experienced in the animation world where it was like um, where there was a, this sort of like monarchy of like, 
okay, here's what you do. But every now and then you do experience that in other parts of the, you know, sort of arts world, you know, where it's people's like, no, 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 you do it like this or, you know, read it as written. And mm-hmm. th- and that's great. I get that. And if someone's a great writer, I want to do it as written. Yeah. But I'm finding that nowadays people are like, they want you to like really go nuts with the script. And if that means, especially like generally what happens is you give them the take as written. And once you know you have that in the can, as they say, then you start messing with it and then you might find something better, you know? Mm-hmm. And most of the writers today, they like that. They, they love it when you can, they're, they're more collaborative. They, they mm-hmm. want, they want people to add a little something extra to what they've already done well, you know, and that's what keeps the thing getting better and better and better. So it's just a ton of fun, you know? And working in animation, I know that even like an 11 or 22 minute episode can just be extremely exhausting on your vocal cords. So like, what are you doing to like, keep your, keep your vocal health after those sessions? Cause well, Julian's a very expressive character to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, when I coach or teach, I tell people, don't create a character voice that you can't sustain for four hours. Right. Screaming. It's similar to, um, you know, a music artist when you're in the studio, as opposed to when you're on tour, mm-hmm. like the savvy studio artist is going to, who knows they're going to go on tour. Like, I don't know if you saw that story about the guy, um, the Filipino guy who ended up replacing uh steve perry and journey yes and 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 steve perry had to like go get vocal training to learn how to do yeah 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 yeah. to learn how to do that live this guy was you know kind of as close to steve perry as you can get i mean steve perry Mm -hmm. steve perry but right um jonathan kane the keyboard player would tell you know i remember i want there's a documentary about this Mm -hmm. about how they found him on 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 youtube and Neil Sean got a hold of him and he's like, Hey, I'm Neil Sean from Journey. We want you to come audition. And the guy didn't believe him. He's like, You're not Neil Sean. He's like, No, I really am. Come audition. We'll fly you out. But anyway, so that, but singing, you know, like once a week in a karaoke bar is different than touring the world and doing maybe three dates a week in different cities on planes and buses with recirculated air. So there's a section in that documentary where Jonathan Cain is like helping him understand how to sing these songs without blowing his voice out and how to come up with B choices. So like, all right, instead of singing, so now I come to you with open arms, you know, he's going to come up with a B line that's a little bit lower for nights where he's not, it's not there. Right. You know, and in a similar way, I tell, I tell voice actors like, Cause I've done it too. Like sometimes I'll be playing around and I'll come up with a really cool, like monster voice or something mm-hmm. that's, um, you know, like, uh, uh, but the, but the question is that I ask myself, like, I know this would be impressive as an audition, but can I do it for four hours straight right. and not harm my vocal apparatus, which is my way to make a living. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I've been like, eh, don't put that in the audition because but then, you know, but if you can do it in a relaxed way and you can, you know, you can sustain it. Usually uh, video games are the worst because, mm-hmm. you know, you're do, at the end of these video games, there's almost, I don't know if I've ever done a video game where someone's not getting beaten and- in, in, Yeah, in you've got to do like a whole 10 minute track just of efforts. Like it's exhausting. Efforts, yeah. yeah. So for folks watching, yeah, they call these things efforts um and or you know and some of them are listed as like taking damage right and so it's so that like if when the programmers are plugging everything in they can have multiple takes so they can say one of five lines okay if knife equals spleen then that that's yeah yeah Yeah. and so you have to do many different takes of the say all right you're you know what's happening. All right, you're taking damage. Like you're getting hit somewhere, some way by something. With a knife. Okay, now with these, a sledgehammer. Now with right? a hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So you create these variations of how big the thing is, how hard you're getting hit. Mm-hmm. And the same thing when you're dying. Like it's like, are you going to do a full death rattle or is it just like, Ugh? or right. is it like, I remember when we did Arkham, Arkham Asylum, uh, I think it was when someone died because they wanted to get a certain rating on the game. They didn't want to go to mature. So there was a thing having to do with death. So they wanted to leave it 
as though it's possible these guys are still alive. <laughs> you <laughs> okay. know what I mean? Yeah. So it'd be like, when you say, Ugh, you have to like breathe a little bit so that there's a possibility like, nah, that guy's not really dead. It's okay. We can still get the, uh, the, the E13, whatever rating it is. <laughs> I was like, okay, I see the game. I see the game. Um, gotcha. But yeah, they, you know, they, um, usually the, the, the sessions that are going to be heavy duty on that, they're nice enough to say, we're going to schedule it on a Friday afternoon for right. you, right? So that you can, if you do rag out your voice, you can have a couple of days to recover in case you have sessions and auditions on the early part of the week. Um, but thankfully it's never, it's not been too much of a problem, but early on when I first started doing video games, like all I knew how to do was, you know, like if I'm doing a film or a, or a play or, or a session, mm-hmm. I'm going for the reality of it. So I'm working this internal you know, process where it's like my best friend's about to get shot. That scream is going to come out how it comes out. And, you know, it's, um, I never want to do the, like, here's the voiceover version of your friends about to get shot. Right. I want to do like, you know, my own friends about to get shot. So right. that's when these sessions get really not only vocally taxing, but emotionally taxing sometimes, you know? So mm-hmm. Um, but I had sort of experience with that end of it too, doing theater and having to do extended runs of plays and having to do plays where I have to do a monologue about my, how my family was murdered every night for like two months, things like that. So you just learn, like you have to know, just like a great ath- athlete, you have to know your instrument, you have to know how much it can take and you have to be, um, I've never, uh, you have to be comfortable that the uh, people are going to give you the support you need. So if you tell if you tell the producers and directors like, guys, uh, you know, my voice is really teetering today. Can we can we save the efforts for the end of the session, et cetera, things like that? And th- mm-hmm. they usually are are ahead of the game on that. Yeah, like, let's do all the lines first, and then we'll come back and do the screaming at the end of the session. So, and they're great about it. And, and they mm-hmm. see that they see that you don't have it or you're sick or something. They're like, you know what? Let's just reschedule it. Um, and probably it's probably even easier now that everyone's recording from their home studios. Right. Because, you know, when I started out, we were all group recording in the same studio. So, um, you know, if that but on a show, it's not a big deal if they have to bring you back in for ADR. They're going to have to bring you back in anyway. Right. If it's sort of a one off um, project you're thinking I, they're not going to want to incur an additional studio cost to bring me back, things like that. So, right. Um, but yeah, you just, you just got to be careful and you have to know how to support your voice, mm-hmm. how to support from the diaphragm and make sure you're not trying to create um, tone and, and, uh, and quality from your, from your up here. It's gotta be from down here. And, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process for me, you know, because, and even people I know who are, you know, opera singers and things, you know, it's sort of a lifestyle. You got to always be hydrated. You know, there's certain things you can eat that are going to affect your sinuses. You know, mm-hmm. some people can't tolerate dairy or wheat, or they can tolerate both, but not when they have them together. Creates mucus stuff. So you you just got to know your own instrument, right? And and really just be the executive of that and right. not expect, you know, take ownership of it. You know, you're the only one who owns the instrument and you're the one who relies on it. So you do want to take very good care of it. Absolutely. So how do you, outside of voiceover, how do you like unwind? How do you recharge your batteries? Like, like what, what do you enjoy doing? Um, I enjoy um, playing tennis, um, playing piano a little bit, singing. Um, I used to play a lot of basketball. I'm trying, I'm hoping to get back into the kind of shape where I could play basketball again without Mm -hmm. killing myself. Um, and just a social time with others, like a a face to face, like I'm, I'm, I'm not good with the social media. Like I do it because everyone's doing it. And there's many people I probably won't be able to interact with if I don't get on social media, Mm -hmm. but I need to go and have a cup of coffee with someone. I need to go have breakfast with someone. And that to me is like, especially after the, after the lockdowns and everything, it's like, you just become acutely aware of how much we need personal interaction. Right. And 
Um, a phone call is better than a, a text is better than nothing. A phone call is better than a text. A video conference is better than a phone call, but there's no, no really substitute for we're here together in the same room. Right. You can give someone a hug, look them in the eye, see their reactions in real time, hear their voice. And, you know, I'm, there's scientific measurables about all that. Right. So it's a real thing. And I just, I felt it very acutely. So I, went out of my way to make sure like I'm going and getting in front of people as best I can, you know? So I just try and do that. And um, reading about health stuff now is, you know, I don't know if that unwinds me, but it is what I do a lot of, you know? Um, and then uh, every now and then I'll go out and do these cons and, and interacting with fans is great. I do some voiceover coaching right now. So that's great. Um, but yeah, just a regular dude. Love my family and friends. And um, yeah, and then and then just my prayer life, of course. That's that's sort of so foundational. I always forget to mention it sometimes. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I like to spend a good amount of time in prayer every day and contemplative prayer if I can. Uh, but any form that I can get in, spiritual reading, things like that. So yeah. Fantastic. So if you were to write yourself a letter and send it back to b before you started getting into voiceover, what would you tell your past self? <laughs> Someone else asked me something similar to this. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, I would tell myself, um, listen, you have these, I would say, Danny, bruh, little bruh, you have certain genetic variants that make you a little bit more susceptible to anxiety and tension. So find ways to let off steam uh, and trust that whatever happens, everything's going to work out. Like really make the decision to trust that wherever you are, it's right where you're supposed to be and that it's a process and you don't need to hurry the process and you don't need to try and skip steps or take shortcuts. Enjoy your life in each moment and trust that God's got you and you're going to end up where you're supposed to end up. And if you have gratitude, wherever you end up will be somewhere that you're really happy with. And if you don't have gratitude, no matter where you end up, you're going to be miserable. I think those are the types of things I'd probably say in a letter, you know, stay close to God, family and friends. Um, focus on the things that are eternal rather than passing. That just the life stuff. I, I used to tell people when they came out to L.A., Sometimes if I had been out there for 10 years and then I'd have younger actors that they, they want to have lunch with me and pick my brain about the mm -hmm. LA thing, you know? And I'd always say to them, listen, you're out here because you want to get your career started, but make sure you live your life too. Because even if you achieve all your career goals, it might take 20 years. So like, don't like not, if you're, if you like to surf, like go surfing on a regular basis, you know, don't like hold it off and just say someday when I have the money, once I'm on a, you know, a series and I have the money, I'm going to start doing all these things that I love to do, or just like enjoying the coastline or all the great hikes out there, uh, meeting people, going out and seeing, you know, theater or whatever, like make sure you do all those things. Because when I was first, sometimes you're so broke and you're so sort of petrified by the size of things you come from a smaller town and things like that, mm -hmm. you end up not doing much in the way of life. And you put so much focus on your career that you sort of self-sabotage because it's like every audition you walk into, it's life or death. And, you know, there's a lot of interviews with actors where they, they'll tell you that the breakthrough they got was when they were working on something else of their own. And they didn't even care about the, they, they didn't even have time to think too much about the audition. They went in audition and said, thanks for the audition. Then they went back to go edit their own film. And that's when they got, that's when they booked the thing because they weren't, they didn't have this crazy desperation. Like I, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I have a friend, uh, my friend, Amanda Koblen, who's a great casting director out there. And she used to let me uh, be the reader for auditions. So I would, I would be the reader for the people coming in and auditioning. So you get on the other side of things and you get to see and you start to see, okay, the real pros are the ones who come in, do their job, say thank you and leave, you know, but the people who are like, yeah, did you, you got, I have a couple questions and, and can I, can I do one more take? And, 
And they're just so, you can just see this, this like, I, I so want this job so bad. And it's like dating. Like if someone wants you that bad, it's like, right. It repels you, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know, man, this guy seems a little, I, I, we had this one audition where this guy came in and the moment he walked in, he was already apologizing and making excuses. He was like, guys, I'm so sorry. My agents didn't get this script to me till three in the morning last night. I, I'm operating on three hours sleep. I, you know, I, I didn't have time to get off book. Uh, this was an on-camera audition for a film. And um, the, the guy was like exactly the right type for the role, right? Mm. And this director was really smart and really kind. And so he said, he goes, you know what? Forget about all that. Don't worry about it. Just sit down. Let tell me what you, what's going on in your life. How you doing? He goes, oh, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm doing this and that. And then he and he and he completely di diffuses the situation. Gets gets this guy's to relax and and talk about himself. And he's this, you can see this guy's now coming back down to baseline. And he's like, you know what the heck? Do you want to try one anyway? Sure. Guy reads the script. He's by far the best choice for the role as far as his acting and his type. But now, because he came in the room that way, it's like, do we want to work this with this guy for three right. or four months? Right. Or is he going to self-sabotage and that kind of stuff on the set? So it was a real big lesson. I was like, wow. You know, you kind of already know it intellectually, but when you see it play out, it's like, man, people need to have other things going on, have your own projects going on, right. be writing your own scripts, be doing your own podcast, whatever. And then when you do these, you know, these professional gigs or auditions, it's not going to be the be all to end all. And you can just focus on the thing, do your job and then leave. Right. And then you don't really think much about, because we, you know, for, for folks who don't know, like, I mean, I'll put in a hundred auditions before booking something. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, oh yeah. Like, your job really does become auditioning. And then every now and then you get this like bonus thing where the actual work is like the vacation. Right. <laughs> it's like especially when um you get a bunch of auditions that are so drastic cuz then you've got to have a certain amount of mental fortitude cuz you'll have one character that an audition that an agent sends you where you just need to be incredibly sad because somebody just died maybe it's for like a horror game or maybe it's for like a drama series and then immediately after that you have to click into like a happy cartoon network or nickelodeon sort of thing and right. it can, even yeah. just that mental yeah, that can be yeah. taxing. And if you get to the point where you enjoy auditioning, then you've then you've won the game. Well, auditioning is the you job. walk away from the audition feeling like you just worked a job. Like you feel like I just I was creative. I you know I I uh, I got to perform. I got to you know express myself creatively. Um, I wasn't sitting around eating Ben and Jerry's on my couch during that time. But <laughs> whatever you know, I could whatever I wasn't doing that was negative was good. And you just you get those natural endorphins from it. You get that little bit of a little bit of dopamine hit from it, and you can mm -hmm. go about your day and feel balanced as a human. Right. But you know, um, if you're really all about the results, it's going to be a hard road to hoe because, like I said, you're going to do a hundred, maybe two hundred. You might get a few in a row. You might get some that you didn't audition did audition for, but you're going to be going in and putting in like I I put a lot of work into my auditions. Like I'm kind of a perfectionist, and I do multiple takes and edits, and and I want it to sound like the finished product, like they could just lift it into the project and not even. Have, I want it to sound like that good. So, um, so it takes a lot of time. So when you do that again and again and again, and you're not getting any work, um, it can be depressing because you're like you you can start being tempted to think you're not good enough you're not doing well but then you have to remind yourself like listen there's thousands of people auditioning and all of them are really talented like you have to be really talented just to get an just get an agent right right just to get a listen i mean and then when you start to think about like the projects that i'm going up against it's like not only am i up against a bit large number of people the people who I'm going against, my colleagues who I love, are some of the best in the world, the mm -hmm. best in the world. So it's like, if I don't get it, it's like, well, of course I didn't. I was up against everyone in the world who's the best at it. Right. You know? But then when you do get it, you're like, wow, I, I was the guy who got it out of all the people who are really good, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can kind of take that to the bank a little bit, you know? But um, 
yeah, it's, it's, um, and then sometimes you get things, uh, you know, the other temptation is to treat more important, like the bigger money projects differently. Like you really care about those auditions, but then you got this little guest spot on a, on a, you know, like a, uh, a preschool show. It's like a one episode thing or whatever, but I treat them all the same. I'm like, I need the work, man. I, right. you know, so I, 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 you know, but there have been a couple of near misses and sometimes you don't get the job because you're like in voice matching. One of the weird things is you can be too close to the voice. Right. Yeah. And they're like, and, and a lot of, a lot of times celebrities in their contract, it's written in that they, they have the um, final say or their first right of refuse. They can refuse up to two or three guys. Sometimes Sasha's was four guys. He could have, he could have, you know, thankfully he heard mine. He's like, yeah, he's fine. But some people have a thing about it. Like if you sound too much like him, there was a story about, I think it was Robin Williams, God rest his soul, who um, he he refused a couple guys because he's like, I don't want, it just freaks people out sometimes. Like when someone can sound that much like him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on the other hand, they just might want, they're like, I don't, I also don't like the idea that someone can do my job. Like I'm replaceable. So right. let's get someone who doesn't sound quite so much like at me. So there's, you know, to the discerning ear, you can hear the difference a little bit, you know, and I had a, a couple of situations where I found out that that was the case. Like you, you know, I was like, how did I not get that? I felt like I nailed it. And they were like, yeah, you were just, you were too close. I didn't know that they could pick like that. I always thought the reason for that was maybe because if they hear something that close, when you have to do something bigger or broader in range, they don't think you'll be able to hit that. So they 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 feel yeah. like there's no room for growth because you hit it on the nail. I didn't know that that they could write it off and say no, you can't do my voice. The, some 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 of them have that in the contract, and a lot of these contracts are just built on the guy who came. You know, like whatever that last guy got, we're gonna get our guy that, and maybe a little right. bit and and, a, and a, some extra Avion water in the trailer or whatever. It's got to be yeah. one more thing. But, <laughs> so even like Sasha may not have even known that was in his contract but when it happened it's like hey uh by the way they're trying to recast your voice and they by contractually have to come to you for approval okay. and then he might he might not even approve me he must he might have just said i don't care <laughs> but they told me no he approved it so you know that was great but there was yeah there was a couple couple of times where the i you know i asked my agent directly i was like you know i had to call back and everything and then it's like it, I'm I'm pretty critical and I have a pretty good ability to, to me, sometimes when other people say, no, it's really good what you're doing voice match wise. I'm just like, sometimes I won't even send the audition. And I'm like, you know, I didn't get close enough on this one. You guys can, you know, move on without me. I don't think I'm going to be able to get it, you know, because I feel like if I'm not this close and I do get the job, I'm going to be embarrassed by <laughs> calling it a voice match because that's not up to my standards, you know? Right. right. <laughs> you know, so, but <laughs> Yeah. And then sometimes you, you're working on a job. Like I, I had a callback, I guess it was between me and another guy for um, this, this role in one of the Marvel films. Okay. And you, then you just start thinking about, I didn't, I didn't book it, but after the fact, you're just thinking about how much money you would have made on that. Right. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, oh, why can't I book one of those? <laughs> that every now and then something will drop in your lap that you didn't even know it was out there. So you can't think about that. I did that my my first year having an agent. I did that where I looked at it and I was like, I didn't book this commercial or this commercial or this. I could have made forty thousand dollars this month. And you you can't think like that. You can't. You can't. <laughs> uh, and I've done it like in the commercial realm too. It's like, man, I you see the thing you auditioned for many times and then you're like that guy's still doing them 10 years later right he's been the voice of that product you know and i have been the voice of, of a couple products so it's like mm -hmm. those are the things that allow me to relax like just financially yeah when you know you have a you know look if you know you're on a series regular mm -hmm. you're like okay i got something i got a tent post in the ground i can build my i'm at least know. have five episodes this month right right yeah because yeah. i've never really been at the i've never really been at the level to where my income exceeds my lifestyle so much that i don't have to worry about it i've always been like 
got to keep it going or man, I've really bottomed out. I got to get it going again, or right. I'm doing really well. I got to keep it up there. It's always something, you know? So when that, ha do does all of your work come from agents or when that happens, is that, do you like start direct marketing or, or do you just start like submitting to like cat, um, different uh, casting rosters or, or how do you address finding new work whenever your agents aren't sending you any? I, well, I'm, it's like, I'm getting the, I'm getting the auditions. Usually okay. I, I, there's a lot of things that I don't do, um, for sort of moral reasons. Um, like I just, I have a little bit more sensitivity than I don't, I don't judge other people for doing it. But when, um, when something comes around, like a first person shooter game, like grand theft auto, I'm not even going to audition for it because okay. I, I don't want to be a part of something where, you know, even if it's a user thing where people are getting points because they're killing hookers. Right. Okay. I don't, I can't be a part of that. You know, it just doesn't align with my, I feel it would be hypocritical of me personally, you know, to be, to be personally opposed, but then kind of, kind of marketing that, that type of thing. So I have done first person shooter. They're usually in the war. They're usually within a war context, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, something like that. Um, but every now and then something comes up or, you know, because, because of my faith, I don't want to use the Lord's name in vain, for example. So there's just certain things that like, I don't want to, I don't want to make it an awkward situation for the people hiring me. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to like accept the job and then be, be in the studio and go, Oh, by the way, I can't say this, this, and this. And then they're like, right. Why didn't you tell us that? So I, I, you know, I, years ago, I gave my agent a heads up. I'm like, listen, let's try and find out what the content of these video games and stuff are before I even audition for it. Cause I don't want to put people in a position. Everyone's just trying to do their job. So I'm just like, you know, I did early on find myself in a couple situations where it was like, Hey guys, is it okay if we change this line because I'm not comfortable with this? And, um, they're, they're used they're Most of them pretty flexible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you want? Well, yeah, that'll work. Let's do that instead. You know? But one of them, it was like, we can't, it's in the original, it was Godfather 2. It's like, everyone knows every line of this movie. We can't change it. It's right. a famous line. I'm like, all right, that, I'm in, this one's on me. I'll do it. And I'll, you know, and then, and then I'll just try and be better in the future about which product. But little by little, it's just been more and more work that I personally have just been like, yeah, I'm not really into doing that or that or that. So there's, there's a, a diminishing pool of, of what I'll, of what my agents know, like, he's not going to want to do that because it's like, you know, whatever pornographic or something. Like that. Right. Gotcha. But, um, so they won't send me as much, but then it's just like, all right, try and send me as much stuff as you can. That's within the realm. And, um, sometimes there's slow times and sometimes it's crazy busy. You know, you're knocking out like five auditions in a day. And then there's weeks that sometimes there's a week or two will go by. I mean, I try and do commercial as well. Um, so, Sometimes when one's slow, the other one picks up and vice versa. So, um, but then that's why residuals become so important. That's why striking about AI and things like that become important because, right. you know, it's been understood in the industry um, in Hollywood that the only way to maintain um, a viable actor pool, the reason why residuals even became uh, they are even agreed to that because they agreed in principle, like, listen, we got to have a certain amount of actors in town to be able to do our films. And those actors have to live somewhere and they have to eat something. And because we don't have enough constant work to the, where they're always on the set, mm -hmm. profit sharing became, became a thing. You know, we're going to, we're going to give residuals so that when these people are between projects, they can stay, stay living here and still be in the acting pool so that when we do need them, we, they're still available to us, you know? So, right. so without residuals, it wouldn't be possible. And um, I sort of figured, I picked up on that real quick when I did that first commercial and I was like, it was all about like, Oh, okay. Because with theater, you can't make residuals live theater. Mm -hmm. You can't make passive income, but with, and that's why I've been like very big with the unit on like, listen, anytime we negotiate, for the interactive contract, we've got to forget everything else. You've got to get it. You've got to get residuals. You got to get royalties somehow right. because it's the only thing that matters. Um, it, it's hard for people to understand who only do video games because they're making a good amount of money on the session fees. But what they don't realize is they could be making five times that on top of the session fees. And not only that, but 
all of that money that they're making has to do with contributions to health and pension. Mm -hmm. So people are thinking in the immediate, like um, a lot of times it's hard to get a strike authorization because they're like, I can't stop working because the people are living hand to mouth. The studios know that. So, um, but that's why it's hard to get the union to actually authorize a strike sometimes. So if we do actually get it authorized, I'm always like, guys, please, we don't need a 5% raise. We don't need, I mean, those things are all great. But if you, if you come back and say, good news, we got a 5% raise, but we didn't get residuals, then it was all for not, you know, right. it, we, we really missed the mark. So it's a bit frustrating, but um, especially when you know what, what they're making, they, they make way more money on the video games than they do on films. Yeah, they do. Especially with all of the, the paid plat packs and DLCs and stuff like that associated with the game. It's, it's billions, yeah. you know, and um, good for them. Like that, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying, hey, you know, if you believe that quality acting, voice acting, and now we're doing full body mocap, we're doing the whole performance. It's like, if you think that that's contributing to the, you know, the game experience and why it's getting purchased in the first place, how about, you know, kicking us a little bit of something? Right. <laughs> so uh yeah that was a bit of a tangent but sorry yeah. that, 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 <laughs> it's okay, that was my little <laughs> well hey thank you for coming on man this has been an absolute blast i really hope you enjoyed hearing danny's journey of embracing acting to the fullest extent and giving as much as it takes to truly breathe life into a character Thanks for stopping by, and I'll see you next time. Also, if you're listening to this podcast as audio only, we do have a video version on YouTube, so you can see the people behind the voices. Give it a shot and subscribe. It really helps. Thank you for listening to The VoiceOver Coffee Shop. For more information on guests, new episodes, and more, be sure to visit www.vocoffeeshop.com.